Here I am, John Atak, yet again, and I have Alec Neville-Lee as my guest. And uh, I'm quite excited about this because we were in touch oh, five or six years ago, and you were writing a book called Astounding um, about the Astounding Science Fiction magazine, which John Campbell Jr. edited and, and which propelled Elrond Hubbard to a greater degree of fame and introduced Dianetics to the world way back in 1950. So um you've written a, a remarkable book and a, an important book because i think it it is a seminal period in in science fiction and therefore a seminal period in literature you know that we can't push science fiction aside and pretend it's it's something other than literature um hubbard was of course um a maverick in his own terms and a, a fairly wild character you say of him and i love this this was in a an article you wrote called xenu's paradox uh, which I'm sure many of our viewers will recognise as a reference to Hubbard's operating Thetan Level 3 course. And you said, from his gargantuan body of work, you can extract a thin slice that is still worth reading. <laughs> and having read a great deal of Hubbard's fiction myself, I couldn't agree more. So what interested you in the project? How did you come to it? Uh, well, first off, thanks, uh, you know, for inviting me here. Um, your your book, uh, Piece of Blue Sky, was um, a fantastic resource for astounding. You know, as I, as I was saying earlier, um, it saved me a lot of time because um, Hubbard. You know, there's a lot of misinformation out there, and it was mm. good to have uh, a a book that I could trust that I thought was a reliable source for some of the information that I, I wasn't able to to research firsthand. Because um, Hubbard, you know, he's someone that I found interesting for a long time, um, but he kind of became part of this book almost by accident. Uh, my original plan had been to write a history of the magazine, Astounding Science Fiction, you know, mm -hmm. later known as Analog, which uh, I've written for for a long time. I was a big fan of, you know, that period and interested in, uh, you know, the history of the genre. Um, but within like a day or two of trying to attack this project, I realized that there was a better book that I could write, which was a biography of John W. Campbell, uh, the editor of Astounding Analog mm -hmm. during this period, who is as you know, an incredibly interesting figure, complex and controversial and, you know, misunderstood in some ways. Um, and I was like, this is a fantastic subject for a biography. And so it kind of, like, over, almost overnight, it became a Campbell biography. And um, the short version of what happened then is that my publisher, uh, my editor said, Campbell is, you know, clearly an intriguing figure, but he is not um, well known enough to justify this kind of book for a mainstream readership. Can you expand the story slightly to incorporate other writers from that period? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, the obvious three are Isaac Asimov, Robert A. Heinlein, and Alvin Hubbard. And she sounded, she said, you know, that sounds great. Um, and so it was sort of, you know, I, I read at Hubbard almost inadvertently because he's a huge part of the Campbell story. Um, Campbell's career cannot be understood. And by, by extension, you know, the evolution of science fiction during this period can't be understood without looking at how Hubbard influenced it. You mm -hmm. know, not so much as a writer, but through Dianetics and um, sort of his personality and his presence during these, you know, like in, in these circles during this period. So Hubbard is a big part of the story. Um, and yeah, sometimes people ask me, you know, why why is Hubbard, you know, in the, in the title of your book, you know, was he really that great a writer? And, you know, I, I say a few things. Number one is that um, even if he wasn't a, a good writer or an important writer, he is such an important part of that story. I couldn't I couldn't neglect him. Mm -hmm. um, it would be it would be, frankly, foolish to not talk about Hubbard, given the interest in his career that people still have. Right. Mm -hmm. to, to write about this period and not make Hubbard a central figure 
simply from like a commercial point of view, you know, it was kind of a no-brainer, right? Because people are, are obviously interested in his story. And finally, you know, um, and maybe we can talk about this a little bit more, you know, the narrative that he was a minor writer, that he was not an important figure during this period is kind of one that has been imposed on the history of science fiction after the fact because mm -hmm. of Scientology. People are uncomfortable with the idea that Hubbard, the founder of Scientology, could have been an important figure in the actual um, literary genre of science fiction. Mm -hmm. And so you can see that story, that history has been revised a bit to remove him from the narrative. Um, but if you go back and read the original stories and the magazines and the letters and the memoirs, you see that he was incredibly um, influential. Uh, shall we say, or at least he was a presence, you know, that you cannot mm -hmm. ignore in, in um, you know, that community. So part of the, the point of the book is to go back and kind of, you know, recenter the story a little bit saying, you know, even if we didn't, you know, regardless of my personal feelings about Hubbard's, uh, you know, afterlife, um, he's clearly a major figure, right? For better or for worse, uh, mm -hmm. you know, during this, this time period. And, and I wanted to write a book that would reflect that. Yeah, and and it it isn't to say that he was a great writer. Um, right. With Heinlein and with Asimov, we we reached that conclusion, I think. Right. Um, it's that he was there, and he definitely had an influence, and that shouldn't be written out of history. That of course he stopped writing uh, fiction in nineteen forty nine and found something that made him a lot more money, mm -hmm. um, and didn't come back to it until nineteen eighty with Battlefield Earth. I, right. I was in touch with A. Van Vogt, who's another incredible character at this time. And I, I, as a kid, I read Van Vogt's stories and I thought they were mm -hmm. wonderful. And so I was quite surprised. I hadn't known until after I'd left Scientology that Van Vogt had been a, a close friend of Hubbard's and had in fact abandoned writing fiction in 1950 so that he could concentrate on giving Dianetic uh, auditing or processing to people. He never followed Scientology. He didn't believe in the spirit or any of that kind of stuff. I was in touch with him in 1984 uh, because he'd written a puff for Battlefield Earth by Hubbard about what a great book mm -hmm. it was. And so I wrote to him and said, you know, why did you say that? Because it evidently isn't a great book. And he said, oh, we're old friends. I didn't read it. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, um, yes, that's funny. Yeah, Ben Vogt is someone I really admire. Um, he's someone who I also am a big fan of his work. Um, and you're right, you know, th this is actually a good example of how it's hard to untangle the literary history of science fiction from Dianetics because um, Van Vogt is not as famous as as Asimov or Heinlein, mm -hmm. but I think he was, I would say they're equal in, in many ways as a writer. And I think one reason why he is not better known is that, you know, during the 50s when uh, science fiction was becoming more of a mainstream uh, category, Asimov and Heinlein were in a position to take advantage of that of that shift, right? Whereas Van Vogt was busy with Dianetics and other things that um, kind of kept him out of the field for a while during this pivotal moment when he mm -hmm. could have really broken through. And I think that's a, a big reason why he is not as um, well-known today as a lot of other writers from that time. Yes, I think so. And of course, the same, as you said, happens to Hubbard, that he withdraws from the field. Mm -hmm. But he's there to to give kind of human interest, to give s stories that Campbell wants, wants him, you know, he doesn't mm -hmm. know anything about gizmos, gadgets, and machines. And of course, although he would claim to be a nuclear physicist, he'd actually, as you point out in your book, failed, of course, in atomic and molecular physics. I, I eventually found a lecture where he says that. Mm -hmm. 
in uh, September 1950, a lecture called Introduction to Dianetics, where he says, I got an F grade, um, mm. despite the pretensions later to a tremendous scientific career. But he's mm. a fabulous, he's a person who is living in the stories and telling the stories and very rarely tells the truth about anything. Um, and yet is part of this fantastic, this fabulous life that is generated around these fairly bohemian characters at this time. And mm. it's a time where they are considered, you know, they're producing Penny Dreadfuls, they're, they're producing, you know, Penny a word, pulp fiction. So they're not being regarded. And as you said at the beginning of the conversation, Asimov and Heinlein are important writers. You know, along with people like, like say, Mike Malcolm Bradbury who, or Arthur C. Clarke, who came up through the genre. And in the same way that if we look back to the 19th century to Dickens, Dickens was not regarded at all by the critics. He was a popular mm. writer. And anybody who's read Great Expectations understands that this man really did know what he was doing. There is nothing like Great Expectations in Ron Hubbard's oeuvre. Um, they, I think uh, Stephen King said that uh, fear was the best story he'd ever ever read, mm -hmm. which is quite surprising. But I speak as somebody who's never managed to finish a Stephen King novel. So, so. well, I'm a big King fan, actually, no. uh, and and that's interesting. You know, that that's an interesting observation. You know, Bradbury was also a big fan of Fear, the novel oh. Fear. Um, and uh, you know, one thing that is worth mentioning is that I'm not, you know, I can't say I'm a Hubbard fan. That there, there are some books of his that I've read that I liked. Um, and again, it's a, it's a small percentage of his output. Hmm. But you know, writers I admire were influenced by him. Writers who uh, we've just mentioned, like Heinlein. Heinlein mm -hmm. had, you know, incredible regard for Hubbard's skills as a as a writer. Asimov was a huge fan before he was even um, a writer himself. You know, growing up as you know a teenager um, in Brooklyn, he read um, Astounding, obviously, and he read mm -hmm. Unknown, the fantasy magazine that that Campbell published, where uh, Hubbard wrote, you know, tons of stories. And he was a huge uh, Asimov was a huge Hubbard fan. So. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to kind of remember that uh, at the time, you know, Hubbard was kind of this character. He was this like larger than life figure who was known in New York pulp circles as being this kind of like, like I said, like fabulous. Like he told tall tales and he was memorable, you know, in the room. Mm -hmm. Right. But he also wrote stories that, um, again, maybe like by our standards, haven't really held up as well. But at the time, you know, people whose taste, I think, you know, one can respect thought he was he was good he was he was considered to be one of the top i would say five or six writers in the field for a long time and and it you know looking back i, I mean i enjoyed some of those early stories that and i think the fail the failure is he was a first draft author mm -hmm. i think the only other successful writer i know of is Ryder haggard who couldn't bear to reread his own work and first draft authors need incredible editors and he didn't have one right. um and so the stories can be satisfying but his style um his way of you know saying uh, slaves of sleep where he's trying to imitate piratic language and of course he was far more interested in piracy both as a career personally and the history of, of pirates than he was in science fiction he was never really interested in science fiction yes. so he's bringing tales of Daring Doe and, you know, he was writing as Legionnaire 148 or was it 149? I'm forgetting his number about the French Foreign Legion. And there's a kind of gusto that there's a, an energy to his work. And the, the stories are imaginative. They, they do tend to fall into a, you know, 
we got to the back of the wardrobe and it em entered, we entered Narnia. They, ten his devices to move into mm. other worlds are fairly simple. But nonetheless, the stories themselves are not bad. But his literary style is truly awful in places. You know, his belief that he's writing 17th century English or, you know, it's just terribly misplaced. Right. And, and again, like, you know, this is true. A lot of pulp writers of that period, you know, they were not writing for posterity. You know, they, they did not mm. think that these stories would be would be read, you know, beyond their initial publication. And, um, you know, I mean, this is true of Asimov, let's say, you know, th those early stories are very clunky. Uh, Heinlein was the exception. I think he was probably the best writer. And he was, you know, he did two drafts, let's say, you know, he did not... Like, like, you know, there was no incentive to laboriously revise any, any no. of his stories, you know, given the fact you were trying to earn a living by writing, you know, for a penny a word. But, you know, Heinlein was um, probably the most interesting stylist, I would say, of that time. But, you know, Hubbard was, um, I mean, he, you know, I, I read a lot of Pulp Fiction from that period. I, I would say Hubbard was above average. You know, there, there's a reason mm -hmm. why he he had a following, especially for stuff like adventure fiction. I mean, you, you mentioned like his love of piracy, of the sea. It really comes through, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I read, I've read all of his uh, science fiction from that period. I've read all the fantasy. I have not read all the other stuff, right? Because he wrote westerns, he wrote, you know, adventure stories. Um, I've kind of sampled it. But one thing I've noticed is that, you know, the closer the story is to the sea, the more interesting it is because yeah. it engages him on some deeper level, right? He really loves thinking about, you know, uh, the navy and about pirates. Um, and he does not, as you point out, love science. You know, the mm. science fiction stories from this period are really perfunctory, okay? And mm. um, very few of them uh, are worth reading now. Whereas, like, even some of the fantasy stuff that he wrote during this period, I think is pretty good. You know, I, I think his his personality was much more suited to fantasy fiction, let's, let's say, than science fiction, uh, which mm. is, like, kind of interesting and, and ironic, you know, given the way his his career progressed. Yes, and and that he would create it, it it's funny the word Scientology which he adopted was first used by a linguist called Alan Upward in 1910 and he used the word to mean pseudoscience interesting and so we have this uh then later we have um a guy called Nortenholz who, who's an Aryan race theorist for the Nazi party writing a book called Scientology in 1934 mm -hmm. um so he's grabbed hold of this world and and I there is this sense, and it's profound in the first couple of years when Dianetics is released and when Scientology comes out of it, that he wants it to sound sciency. Mm -hmm. And there's I've interviewed a guy called or corresponded with a guy called Perry Chapdelaine, who was with Hubbard mm -hmm. in 1950, and um it was a mathematician, and he said one one evening he got a phone call from Hubbard saying, Bring a bottle of scotch, we need to write something that sounds scientific and they wrote the dianetic axioms which i don't i don't i, I may be the only person in the world who's read them they're not on any scientology course and they're you know lambda theta you know that it's written as if we, we're we're now studying algebra mm -hmm. uh, wow and it, it's a brave attempt but ab abject nonsense when it comes down to it yeah no i mean i mean that's actually a very interesting point right the idea that he wants to sound scientific um mm. You know, because again, he he um, is tailoring these ideas toward a certain audience. Okay, and um, one thing I, I enjoy talking about, you know, in the book is that um, you know Campbell is really involved in shaping you know the presentation of this material, mm -hmm. like in the late '40s, right? Yeah. So Hubbard and Campbell, you know, to me, one of the big 
revelations of you know my research uh, you know the, the thing that struck me the most is that they were they were collaborators you know they were equal partners yeah. you know at that stage and you know the ideas the underlying ideas were were hubbards but campbell had a big impact on the vocabulary and how you know this stuff was written up you know because he wanted to attract an audience of scientists of medical professionals and of science fiction fans, okay? And Campbell understood that to, you know, interest people like this, you have to kind of couch it in terms that, you know, sound scientific. So stuff like cybernetics becomes a big influence on this period in, in, in uh, Dynetics. Absolutely. Even though Hubbard himself, you know, is not really interested in cybernetics. You know, he he is not someone who has read this stuff. Uh, he's not familiar with like the work, the way that Campbell is. So the first, you know, Articles about uh, Dianetics uh, have this kind of veneer of cybernetic language that Campbell imposes. And then later, the, the two of them have this famous falling out. They go their separate ways. And all that stuff kind of gets dropped. You know, mm -hmm. like the language that Campbell introduces in the earliest uh, articles, and even in the book Dianetics, um, you know, it, it's, it's de-emphasized, right? Because mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's not the language that Hubbard speaks naturally, right? It's the language that Campbell speaks naturally. But, you know, Hubbard draws from other sources, you know, I would say he's more interested in like mystical sources and the occult, you know, um, and, and you can see that change, right? And, and there's this interesting period before kind of Scientology uh, proper takes shape when um, he's dropped the Campbellians, you know, material mm -hmm. and is still kind of developing, you know, what it's going to become with his followers. You know mm -hmm. who again are, are mostly science fiction fans, so that their influence is very clear in in what comes out of that too. Yes, very much so. And of course, the, there is this this break that that the New Jersey Medical Association sue Hubbard and Dianetics for practicing mm -hmm. medicine without a license. All five of the original foundations, uh, in pretty much within a year, are bankrupt. All of the directors of them saying Hubbard came and took the money. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, so Hubbard's facing suit. He, his marriage, his second and bigamous marriage uh, to Sarah Northrup is falling apart. He kidnaps his, their baby child and uh, Alexis Valerie takes her to um, Cuba with uh, Richard DeMille in tow, who's Cecil mm -hmm. B. DeMille's son. I mean, this mm -hmm. it just keeps on growing, the story. Yeah. And while he's there, a Wichita Royal man, Don Purcell, says i'll bail you out and he he but he takes buys dianetics from hubbard for a dollar because they really think everything is going to go wrong and so hubbard has not only given up the name dianetics he's also given up the book dianetics the modern science of health which has been pulled out of publication because art cpos john campbell's friend who published mm -hmm. it has said it's fraudulent it does not work the claims being made here are simply untrue. And he commissions Hubbard's partner, Dr. Joe Winter, to write Doctor's Report on Dianetics, which mm -hmm. castigates Hubbard, but still reckons that Dianetics is a good idea. Mm -hmm. What happens in the midst of that is that Hubbard finds himself without Dianetics, fighting with Don Purcell, who's funded his return, and desperate to do something new because he has no following anymore. And he creates Scientology. And where mm -hmm. Campbell has been the inspiration for the, the language of Dianetics and some of the ideas of Dianetics. Now it'll be Alistair Crowley. Full pelt, it'll be. We're, and it, it, it'll be the occult. 
and it's then translating the occult into scientific sounding terms. So where we would have the magical will or Thelema of Alistair Crowley, we have intention or tone 40 in Scientology. And you've translated this or postulates where rather than this being a philosophic premise, it becomes a wish. And in Scientology, you have this idea where you have these postulates and just like the secret or Christian science, everything is a consequence of your thinking. Everything that happens to you is a consequence of your thinking. And Hubbard goes off and creates his own navy in the midst of all this, mm -hmm. speaking of being a pirate. Yeah, I mean, this this period to me is really interesting because, mm. um, you know, one thing I talk about in the book is um, it's around this time the past lives start to become a uh, factor, you know, like uh, Dynetics auditing has always gone back to the prenatal state, right? Until mm. like before you were born, you hear these things in the womb that kind mm. of affect your, your personality. And I think it's kind of natural that you would keep going, you know, and you would say, okay, well, what if, what about previous lives? How, how, how did those affect you? And so people are basically under hypnosis, you know, with, with Hubbard, and they're recalling these past lives. And a lot of them are science fiction themed, right? Mm. Because if you're encouraging someone to, let's just say, fantasize and kind of come up with this scenario about their past life, and they are a science fiction fan, it's often going to have those elements. It's, it's mm. going to have those images. And I think what you're seeing in this period is like Hubbard and his followers in this kind of feedback loop where they're giving him this material. He is embellishing it, feeding it back to them. And that's where a lot of the sort of the space opera elements in Scientology mm. come from. It, it's from Hubbard responding to the stuff that his followers are kind of spontaneously generating in these sessions. But that's certainly the impression that Hubbard wished to generate. Um, in June 1951, when Science of Survival, his second book, was published, there is this kind of disquisition about, you know, of course, people are finding these past lives and I'm not sure about this because he's still hedging his bets. He doesn't know, you know, he knows that if he overstates something, he could be in trouble. But what we do know, of course, is that he believed in past lives long before Dianetics because mm -hmm. he was a follower of Alistair Crowley. Yeah. And so he is less than less than truthful. He is economical with the truth. It's like the mm -hmm. idea that it, he didn't come up with the notion of it being a religion. And he would always say, you know, in February 1954, Burton Farber registered the first Church of Scientology, Church of Scientology of California, end of. And you go, well, what about the three registrations for churches in Camden, New Jersey in December 53, which all have his signature, his young wife, Mary Sue's on, his mm -hmm. third wife, and the signature of his oldest son, Alvin Hubbard Jr. This is the Church of Scientology, the Church of Human Engineering, and the Church of American Science, which has as its purpose to recruit Christians and move them on, and I quote, to something better like Scientology. So, and he's written in, on 10th of April 1953, he's written a letter to his immediate junior, Helen O'Brien, and said, what do you think of the religion angle? Mm -hmm. So I think that he always knew that he was going to go down this direction of past lives. But as you say, the feedback comes from the following that are largely science fiction fans. Mm -hmm. So, yes, you've got, I'm told by Karen de la Carriere, who was supervised everything in Clearwater, Florida for them, that she knew of 200 people who thought they'd been Jesus Christ in a past life. And so, and significant Napoleon, Caesars, what have you. But you are so right. Normally, it's um, robot doll bodies racing in atomic-powered cars, which is the kind of story that Hubbard mm -hmm. himself 
told. We find out about the fourth invader force who live on Venus and the fifth, in, it's a bit hot there, and the fifth invader force who live on Mars and it's a bit cold there. And anybody who thinks their hands are too big used to be a member of the fifth invader force. And we have these tiny little islands in the one and a quarter quadrillion years that Hubbard posits we've we've been around, which is a very long time indeed. We have these tiny little moments that, that we are given a vision of, which are all rather like 1940s science fiction when, when you look at it. And, you know, of course, the past life thing, you know, there, there's been absolutely no evidence suggested um, that, and it would be easy if somebody had had a past life in, you know, medieval France, they'd be able to speak medieval French, and that's very easy to check. And nobody has. And although Hubbard insisted that all of his followers had lived for one and a quarter quadrillion years, um, I, you know, I thought a quadrille was a dance, but apparently you can extend it to millions of millions of millions of years. And so because everybody, so when he had a couple of hundred people aboard his ship, th there was a point where he sent a crew with a boat with no nautical experience, because of course they'd remember it from past lives. But when they couldn't get anybody in port to speak French or Spanish, nobody sort of went, well, surely there must be somebody in their past life spoke French or Spanish. So it it becomes a an imaginative construction with which people join. You know, that that mm -hmm. if there is such a thing as reincarnation, it is likely that there have been other planetary civilizations before our own. You know, even if we restrict ourselves to 13.8 billion years, mm -hmm. um, it's very possible. And so, therefore, if we have these things, the problem is, of course, that you're dealing with um, the uh, incredible ability to make false memories. And right. and so, you know, it, it does get rather dangerous. Um, did, did, you, uh, did you encounter anything by George Hay when you were researching? The name Rusa Bell. Can you remind me a little bit about George Hay? Um, yeah, George... I, I, I do. I think I did. Yes, but but why don't you give me some background? Yeah, George was the man who invited Hubbard to England in 1951 for the first time, and he was a science fiction writer himself. He gave up writing um, following a, a series of projects. I had the great pleasure of knowing him at, towards the end of his life in the 1980s. Um, one of his projects was to create the what was then the Northeast London Polytechnic Science Fiction Library, which was the first um, university library in the UK of science fiction and to regard you know, science fiction in that way. But he was somebody, he'd been around Hubbard and watched the change in Hubbard. And you know, because I spoke to many, so many people who'd known Hubbard you know, from birth onwards, we, we had an interview with um, Margaret Roberts, which Russell Miller did. And Margaret Roberts was his aunt. She was eight years older than him. So, yeah, we were able to check things about the, you know, whether he really was a blood brother of the Blackfoot Pakuni Indians. And um, her answer to that, having lived in the same house as him until he was 12 years old, is that there was no contact of any kind with the Blackfoot. Mm -hmm. And, of course, they've said we never made any blood brothers and there's, you know, no record of, of Ron Hubbard ever meeting um, Tom Madfeathers or... Um, mm -hmm. Old Mayo, as he's also called in other places. He's a man who lives inside stories. So you quite rightly say in, in your excellent book that there will be a kernel of truth in his stories, that 
he he himself in one of those dianetic axioms says that there is no such thing as imagination we simply work you know further work on things stories that already exist i i personally don't think that's true i think occasionally new stories do come along but um in his case everything is reworked so the blackfoot story fascinated me and i i dug and dug and dug that they the nearest reservation to Helena, Montana is 170 miles away. So as a six-year-old boy, he probably wasn't kind of popping over to hang out with his blood brothers. Mm -hmm. I think that what's more likely is that there was some kind of family story because um, when he went by train at six months old to Helena, Montana uh, from Kalispell, um, they, that train actually went through. It stopped at a Blackfoot reservation. It's the only immediate contact I could find. And it was 1911, and there will have been members of the tribe begging on the station, probably for alcohol at that point, because it's a really low point in a remarkable uh, people's history. And there was probably some comment in the factory, in the, the family about that. You know, so you know, his two little holidays in China became studying with gurus in the East and... Um, mm -hmm. As you know, you're one of the few people who've seen his diaries. They've still not become public. Um, but when he was uh, 16 and, and went to China, he, he kept a diary. He's 15 and 16, but there are three diaries, and there are two handwritten ones, and there's one typed up. And the typed up one is much better than the original it comes from. And it shows that writer's tendency to elaborate and embroider upon their experience and turn it into something. Um Somerset Mormon, his writer's handbook, actually offers you his notes to say, I, wherever I am, I scribble these things down. I think these things. And, uh, of course, in his life, he, he, the um, Ashenden stories are about, they're the first 20th century spy stories because he was a spy, Somerset Mormon, working for British intelligence. And in the same way, Hubbard has an experience and magnifies it and... Uh, it becomes, you know, ultimately it becomes Scientology, which is kind of like a, a fabulous science fiction story all of its own. Yeah, I mean, to me, this is the most interesting part of what we're talking about. You know, the idea that, yes, the, these ideas grow from these kernels, you know, these seeds that are planted mm -hmm. early on, right? But, um, you know, if you think about like, what actually appeals to Hubbard himself, you know, the, what, what are the stories that resonate with him personally? They tend to be westerns, you know, like this this fantasy about being like a blood brother. They tend to be nautical stories. Um, aviation, you know, is something that he thinks about a lot. Mm. But not, and, and you know, like, and there's this sort of interesting like um, layer of like Arabian Nights, uh, Richard Francis Burton, um, sort of like this Orientalist, you know, kind of mm. stuff that comes out of a lot of these fantasy stories. So this is what he writes when he's like. You know, writing for his own—I wouldn't say his own pleasure, because he's writing to, to sell—but you know, his his own interests kind of run more in that direction. Mm -hmm. And science fiction, as as you know, we talked about, you know, he he's really writing that for the money, right? He is not a science fiction fan. He's not a science fan. Um, you know, he's writing because Campbell is a great market, and you mm -hmm. know, he can sell these stories, and he he builds an audience that way. But you know, to me, it's always interesting that. Um, when he's given the chance to live out fantasies in his own life, they tend to look more like nautical fiction. You know, the idea of the Sea Org, you know, him in this uniform, you know, like like that is what he's talking back to, right? Like if mm -hmm. he's going to live out this fantasy, it's going to look more like that, right? Mm -hmm. 
and so the science fiction elements in Scientology, to me, I've always thought seem um, to come from elsewhere, right? They they are kind of coming out of, as, as we said earlier, like the milieu of fans that he has access to, you know, and kind of takes over his life in ways that I think even he, you know, was kind of surprised by, you know, like if Hubbard, if it had been up to him, it's unclear that, you know, the science fiction would have been as um, prominent an element in Scientology as mm. later became, right? I, I think this is him reacting in some ways to his available audience, um, you know, and and if he were just like left to his own devices, I, I think, you know, you, you'd end up with something that was a lot more mystical, a lot more um, indebted to fantasy um, and to uh, the occult, as we said before, right? Mm. And the science fiction stuff, um, you know, it, it, it seems almost like pragmatically speaking, given the people that he was surrounded by, he knew that this is what they wanted to hear. Um, and, and kind of ends up absorbed in these ideas and even in like, you know, his, his life in ways that I think even he was kind of surprised by. Yeah. I, I think he was carried along by that. And, and there are so many strange elements to his story of, uh, for example, his uh, relationship with Lenny Riefenstahl, um, which is a, you know, a shock that, that Lenny Riefenstahl having made, um, triumph of the will and Olympia mm -hmm. for Hitler would never work again. And uh, given the quality of those two documentaries, that's a terrible shame. Given mm. the quality of the human being, maybe it isn't. But she was Ron Hubbard's guest in London. She stayed in his apartment there. And so he's cultivating, you know, people who are not necessarily in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he, I think he's very much influenced. I, I, uh, you probably know something about Arthur J. Burks, and you probably know a lot more oh, about yes. him than I do. Yes. And I think he was an incredible influence on Hubbard. Um, yeah, for, for people that don't know Burks, uh, so he was a pulp fiction writer from that period, and he was kind of like Hubbard's mentor a little bit mm -hmm. uh, during the, in the pulp world. You this know, is was the, book, the... the book Monitors that you have there. Yeah, yeah. so, so yeah. I, I, I'm one of the few uh, owners of this book. Um, I, I have a copy too. We are the two people in the world who have that, it. That's great. Yeah, no, I actually was looking at this recently. And um, so Burks was sort of, you know, an established pulp writer before Hubbard arrived in New York. And, you know, kind of like embodied what Hubbard wanted to be as a writer in that period, this guy who could just crank out stories incredibly, you know, like fast writer who, you know, had, had lots of ideas, um, you know, maybe not the, the greatest stylist, but certainly a very prolific, competent pulp writer. Um, and he's one of the, um, I mean, there, there's a really famous story about how Campbell was ordered to buy whatever Burks and Hubbard wrote because they were reliable writers um, mm -hmm. with an audience, you know, at a time when Astounding needed people like this, you know, uh, in its in its roster of authors. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, Burks also was a occultist. You know, he, he did these, you know, I mean, you know, I'm not a Burks expert, but, you know, I know that he engaged in um, automatic writing and in these sort of spirit seance type activities with a um, spirit guide uh, whose identity is a little bit hard to pin down. And Hubbard was part of that uh, group. You know, mm. he was he was familiar with Burks's uh, occult interests, you know, in the late 30s. Um, he, he pops up occasionally in monitors under a different name. It's called the um, Redhead. Yeah. And uh, yeah, no, so so you're right. I mean, Burks is an interesting figure here who I would love to dig into a little bit more someday because mm. it's obvious that a lot of the stuff here... Um, 
that you know they were doing in the 30s like pays off much later on in, in Hubbard's career. Hmm. Yeah, there, there's a period in at the beginning of 1949, um, Hubbard is visiting um, Burks in Savannah, and Burks, of course, is a major in, in the Marines. He's a successful military officer, and there is a letter written by Hubbard to Fori Ackerman, his uh, agent, in January 49, where he says he has discovered a method where you can rape women and they mm. won't know about it. And he thinks there is an incredible amount of money possible in this method. This is the first mention of the first version of Dianetics, which is nothing like the version that's released. Um, but it's fascinating that he's not saying anything about benefiting people with this technique. Mm -hmm. He's talking about raping women without their consent or knowledge and making a lot of money. And he's right there with Burks. So when you look at the book Monitors, he describes that visit. That's what he's talking about. And there is a, you know, there are several passages in there, which, which if you know what surrounds them are really quite fascinating. So for example, Burke says that, that Hubbard was an accomplished glider pilot, and he'd uh, called himself a barnstorming pilot with the nickname Flash, Flash Hubbard. Um, and he is never frightened when he's flying because he can see his holy guardian angel on the wing. Now, this is a Crowleyite notion, the holy guardian angel, and he describes her. He says she has red hair and a green dress. In writings that... Scientology has tried to keep secret, but went into a court case. We find that this character is the Empress, and she is his holy guardian angel in the Crowleyart system. He believes that she is always with him, she is always protecting him. And there is a peculiar, peculiar little passage in, I think it's in um, Dianetics, the Evolution of Science. It's either there or in Dianetics, the original thesis. Uh, both of which were in fact constructed after the time they're meant to belong to, where he talks about the methods he used to devise Dianetics. One of them is automatic writing. Um, in 1984, I talked with a woman called Jo Scott, who'd been Hubbard's secretary in 1954 in London at Fitzgerald Square. And um, she, looked, she said, um, he said to me one day that, that Dianetics, the modern science of mental health, was automatic writing dictated by the Empress. Do you know what he meant? Wow. So you find yourself cross-referencing. The other thing in there is that Burks talks about the little its, these little spiritual beings. And he mm -hmm. says, and the redhead can see them and they jump between his fingers. This will later be recycled as the big secret of Scientology, the indwelling body thetans, the little spirits, the demons that we're all supposed to be possessed with. Um, so I, you know, I do think there's a lot more that could be found out about Burks and his relationship to Hubbard. But I do, in reading Stranger in a Strange Land, which is why I, I came to you a couple of weeks ago, because I, was, I read it when I was in Scientology. I thought nothing particularly of it, and it was a, an amusing book. Coming back to it, it is startling the parallels between Hubbard's thinking and Heinlein's thinking. Mm -hmm. And it's made me think that perhaps Scientology is a product, product of a series of collaborations, Burke's first, Campbell afterwards, and Heinlein along the way as well.
and that there are conversations these people men are having which hubbard is putting into or will put into scientology because mm -hmm. the belief system put forward in stranger in a strange land is scientology you know the abilities of valentine michael smith are the abilities that hubbard promised to his followers um and the the kind of thou art god attitude is you know has a relationship to scientology um so i'm really interested in in that relationship with heinlein uh, you know knowing only what i've read in your book about heinlein which is is quite a lot and very useful um how close were they you know how much time did they spend together we we hear that hubbard protested that heinlein had made him have sex with heinlein's wife um and i have heard and i am not able to confirm it because i can't afford to look at heinlein's diaries because uh they're, they're kind of a dollar a page or something right right but a friend of mine who read read them oh 10 years ago said there's actually a record of a homosexual relationship between hubbard and heinlein um so so yes so this this is this is why i, I wanted to, to talk to you you know i think this is really interesting stuff um that um you know deserves to be looked at closely so mm. heinlein was uh based in los angeles all right mm. um and you know this is mostly during the period when hubbard's in new york in the late mm. 30s and so they were not um in the same room that much during this period you know that we're talking about early on before the war okay mm. and then during the war they're deployed to different locations as well um they 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 correspond you know heinlein is aware of hubbard's um version of his naval service okay which as you know is is largely fabricated um and the key thing is that you know they reunite in philadelphia okay and this is toward the end of the war and this is the first time they've really spent a lot of time together although they're kind of mutual admirers um this is the time when there is an alleged um encounter between Les and Heinlein and Hubbard, which I think did happen. Um, and the, the background here is that Heinlein believed Hubbard was a war hero, okay? Mm -hmm. He was a fan of Hubbard's work before this, and he heard Hubbard's accounts of being wounded in battle and recovering from these injuries, and he he accepted them at face value, okay? He, he never questioned them, even years later, all mm. right? So he, he thought that Hubbard was a hero who had been hurt in the war. And I think... Um, this is what you need to know to understand this this friendship because he encourages him to sleep with Leslin. Um, it's kind of clear if there's anything else, you know, you talk about this other encounter. I have not been able to verify that. Mm. Um, it's certainly worth mentioning. I think Leslin is the one who actually talks about this, uh, who alludes to this having happened. Um, so I don't know. Okay, that, that's yeah. the short answer. Yeah. You know that after the war, uh, Hubbard, uh, after he is discharged, I think he's in a psychiatric hospital or, or a veterans hospital. Um, he lives with Heinlein and 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 Leslin for a period in Los Angeles. Okay, and they are housemates. They are writing, you know, kind of like um, we, we don't call it. You know, they they have like a they have like an arrangement, right? Where where Hubbard gets to live there. Um, this is prior to Jack Parsons, uh, another interesting episode who uh, Hubbard meets through Heinlein. And so, they're, so they're part of this circle. They're, they're part of the circle of writers in Los Angeles. Um, and then later on, there is a falling out, which um, I don't really know the, the details of. But it sounds like um, Hubbard is talking big about some big plan about going to China with like guns and knives. It, it you know it, it's like one of these like sort of wild stories 
that he's always kind of spinning. And Lison's nephews, I think, get involved in some way, or they get excited by the idea of like maybe going to China with Hubbard. Um, mm -hmm. Heinlein thinks this is uh, crossing a line. He gets really angry. Um, and you know, they have like you know a period where Heinlein does not trust Hubbard. All right. Mm -hmm. I think he still believes in Hubbard's war record, but otherwise, and maybe, you know, kind of inexplicably, you know, he he knows that Hubbard is a fabulist, that he makes up things and that he is unreliable in, in certain ways. Mm -hmm. um, and then they kind of, again, they part ways and, and they, they don't really cross paths again in person um, after that point. They, they, they correspond, you know, there are still letters between the two of them. Um, Heinlein is certainly aware of Dianetics. He is interested um, mostly through Campbell writing to him, actually, uh, kind of describing the work that he is doing with Hubbard. Um, he is not, this is a very interesting point to me. So Heinlein is in Los Angeles in the, I would say 1950, I want to say, working on a movie. And mm -hmm. he leaves just before Dianetics takes off in Los Angeles. And I've always wondered what would have happened if Heinlein had been around in LA instead of going to Colorado, um, if he'd been there at the same time that people like Van Vogt were getting involved. Um, mm -hmm. And there's there's a interesting alternate history, uh, let's say, where Heinlein would have been much more involved than he ended up being. But mm -hmm. there's kind of almost like a quirk of timing where he is not present. Uh, you know, he's geographically uh, distant, you know, from mm -hmm. sort of the hotbed of Dianetics during that period. Um, and so you have to talk about Stranger in a Strange Land, you know, and these similarities, which I think are, are real. You know, I think mm -hmm. a lot of what you're seeing in Stranger in a Strange Land reflects Heinlein's awareness of Scientology um, in terms of this friend of his has started a cult that is getting attention and getting followers and, you know, earning him lots of money, right? And I think Heinlein is interested in, and almost amused by this. He, he knows Hubbard, right? He knows Hubbard well enough to be skeptical, I would mm -hmm. say, of any answers that Hubbard is um, offering, all right? Mm -hmm. But again, it, it, it's mostly affectionate. It's it's mostly him being um, kind of like tickled by his friend's unexpected uh, second act, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, and that stays more or less positive until the end, right? He, he always speaks of Hubbard as a war hero. He always uh, looks back fondly on that friendship, you know, apart from a few bumps along the way. Um, so the question about influence, I think, is an interesting one. Okay, mm -hmm. I want to very quickly give you my opinion, right? Please, yeah. Um, which is that I think any similarities between uh, Heinlein's ideas as expressed in Stranger in a Strange Land and Scientology are less about any direct dialogue between the two of them mm -hmm. as it is a reflection of um, like a common origin, right? Mm -hmm. They're both coming out of the Campbellian period in astounding when the idea of um, the Superman, the idea of um, psychology as an exact science and of the sort of mental engineering that you would use to enhance your abilities and attain these these powers, you know, th th that's a key part of science fiction, like during that period. And Heinlein writes stories, um, you know, much earlier that explore these themes. Um, and I think that Hubbard's ideas in some ways are also rooted in the same uh, you know, kind of the source. Um, and so, it, 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 and again, I could be wrong, and, and there are other people that, that know Heinlein better than I do, but my impression is that the two of them didn't talk about this stuff directly, uh, mm -hmm. at least not not in a, the kind of detailed way you, you you might expect. I think they are kind of drawing on a common, like a, like a foundation, shall we say, of ideas that um, 
kind of, um, you know, they, they, they develop them separately, right? But mm. they look similar, right? Because they come from the same place. Mm. And I think that's the answer. I, I think, I mean, I, I, I'm pretty sure that's, that's the explanation for the parallels that, that you're seeing. Yeah, I, I mean, Hubbard's um, foray into mysticism is um, slight. You know, he isn't somebody who sat and read the Vedas and um, the Mahabharata and the Pali Canon. And he, his references to Buddhism, to Taoism, are secondhand. They're generally what Alistair Crowley had to say. Right. And might it be that this common source is indeed Alistair Crowley? You say that Heinlein knew Parsons. Do you know more about that relationship? Jack Parsons, yeah, I mean, of course, being the magician, the Crowley art magician who was at Jet Propulsion's laboratories uh, and developed solid rocket fuel and uh, performed uh, a ritual in the attempt to incarnate the Whore of Babylon, who, which would lead to the, the end days, the coming of Armageddon and all of this sort of stuff. Um, so, so there is a a thread of um, mystical thinking in Heinlein's work that goes back kind of early on. You know, he was interested in theosophy, um, yep. which is related uh, in a field. Um, and you know, he he looked into psychic powers. You know, so so it, it's possible there is like some influence there, uh, or like like some affinity there. Mm. Um, the other guy who I should mention is Alfred Korzybski. Yes, He's a Polish philosopher who is a, a, is absolutely a sort of common reference point here. Okay. Yes. Um, so Krzyzewski founded this field called general semantics, which um, you know, and again, I'm not, I'm not I'm not that familiar with it, but you know, it is a kind of mental engineering. It's this idea that you can kind of like train the mind to, you know, see things more accurately to mm -hmm. avoid these illusions that we we all have. Um, Heinlein was a big fan of Krzyzewski. He he knew his work really well. Okay. Um, Hubbard refers to him a few times. Um, it's unclear to me whether he actually got through those books. Uh, you know, they are fairly oh, dense. Oh, he, he didn't. Um, okay. uh, Sarah, the second wife, and A. Van Vogt explained general semantics to that's, Hubbard. That's, that's exactly he, what I, I yeah. gathered. Um, so, so, and again, like, so this, this is, this is a interesting point because, um, Korzebski's ideas were kind of trendy in science fiction mm -hmm. for a period. Like I would say starting in the forties, Van Vogt writes several, uh, really interesting stories that seem to, um, you know, like World of Null A that are, are Nolet, yeah. you know, uh, clearly influenced by Korzebski, um, Heinlein, uh, has several stories from this period that are clearly influenced by Korzebski. So, you know, it's kind of in the air, right? Mm. And I think Hubbard absorbs this in the way that, as you point out, he absorbs other stuff, even without being familiar with them firsthand. He's kind of the sponge that soaks up, you know, stray bits of information and and, and language and, and ideas that he can kind of then assimilate mm. and, and turn into, you know, his own stuff, right? And I think that's true of Korzebski. I, I think um, if you want to see like a, you know, but like, like where, where these two guys overlap, um, that's kind of a good place to start, I, I would say. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Krasivsky is is actually, Hubbard references him in a book as a source um, before he decides that all of the ideas in Scientology are his own entirely. Right. Um, and a, a couple of the ideas, that the one is that the word is not the thing itself, which is a very important thing to realize in this world, I think. And the other famous Kozybski statement, um, the map is not the territory. 
-hmm. And that perhaps relates to, I'm told it Immanuel Kant first put forward the idea that there is the world around us and there is the world that we inhabit as individuals, how we interpret the world and we perceive the world through that lens. Hubbard would would make this, you know, you have your own universe, and which is not in fact correct word, use of the word universe, but we won't get into that, which is an entire system of created things. We did get into it. Sorry about that. Um, so we have this, these ideas that come from Kozybski, but this, the sense I have after so many years is that Hubbard was not deep, but there isn't, you know, he'll refer to the Encyclopedia Britannica, the pre-First World War edition, um, the uh, Fall of the Roman Empire by Gibbons, um, the abridged version of Frazier's Golden Bough, because who's going to read more than 900 pages about that? And he just keeps circling around these these sets of things. A friend of mine um, went to visit Hubbard's ho former home at St. Hill Mansion in e near East Grinstead in Sussex, and they still in his office had the books on the shelves. And my friend started writing the titles down. And he thought, well, I can come back and do this again some other time. And when he went back, the shelves were empty wow. because the books on them were science fiction, pulps, yeah. um, popular manuals on hypnosis and books about magic. And, yeah. you know, it, it wasn't sort of, uh, you know, the profound work of great psychologists or, or anything of that nature. It was uh, largely pulp. Um, but and he pulled all of these things together and somehow made them sound, you know, and I'm embarrassed, you know, I was involved with Scientology, I have to admit it, you know, so um, if anybody wants to humiliate me, that's all they have to say. He used to be involved in Scientology. He wrote a book about it, you know. Um, but those ideas somehow are convincing to, you know, I was only 19 when I got involved and that's the only excuse I have. But uh, there have also been, you know, there were eight medical doctors in Scientology and three dentists that I knew in the UK. There was a professor of sociology. There were two NASA scientists I knew. Um, and of course, a lot of very celebrated actors and musicians. So it kind of shows that, that you can pass all this stuff up and you can sell it on and you can sell it on without it actually achieving anything. So you can make claims about, you know, you'll have telepathic skills. Nobody's got them and there's no demonstration of them. But if you just give us another $10,000, who knows what might happen? It interested me that Heinlein also remained fascinated by psychic powers and mm -hmm. keeps coming back to the idea of telepathy and a telepathy machine and this sort of thing. And so I think there's something in the sort of foundation of credulity that, that these are men who are willing to believe things of this nature. And even though Heinlein was an engineer, he really was a scientist, he was still drawn to this sort of um, perception of the world. Theosophy, as you say, it, it's a very bad starting point um, for, for anybody. I mean, I mean, out of it, we get Aryan race theory, that exactly mm -hmm. what the Nazis came to believe was what Madame Blavatsky had said in the 1880s. She was the first person to be investigated by the British Society for Psychical Research, founded by co-founded by William James and Mark Twain, mm -hmm. and declared a fraud by this society who desperately wanted proof of something. Um, she's she's writing down automatic writing from Tibetan masters, 
um, mm. even gives names to them, and creates this incredibly influential body of work, which will um, sort of dazzle people. It has no authenticity. She really didn't study with Tibetan masters, and it it produces that. You know, out of it we get um, anthroposophy. Um, with the Church Universal and Triumphant, the fascist mm -hmm. silver shirt movement in um, mm -hmm. America comes out of theosophy. And there is so, that that last point, I think, is significant with Heinlein and with Hubbard. They're both seeking the Superman, mm -hmm. just as Himmler did through the Lebensborn, this idea that pure Aryans would be born who would have what he called electron powers. These are the superpowers of the operating Thetan or of, you know, or of Valentine Michael Smith. And mm -hmm. it seems it it seems to me, from the little I understand about Heinlein, that he was not a philosophical mind. He was not somebody who had studied um theological implications. He was not practiced in hermeneutics. He was an engineer who liked the idea of magic, who liked the idea that there was a magical force of some kind in mm -hmm. the world, and who had broken away from and wanted to break away from conventional society and the establishment. Yes, I, I think, you know, you're, you're, you're touching on a very important point here, okay? So the, the idea of the Superman predates all these people, right? Mm -hmm. Like the stories about Superman were a, a sort of a almost a cliche in science fiction by the time, you know, Campbell mm -hmm. came around. And, and Campbell really wanted to kind of reframe the Superman story. We're, we're going to get a new kind of Superman story written mm -hmm. that is more, like, like you said, more scientific, at least, at least kind of, it gives the appearance of being more scientific. And it comes out of the idea of like mental engineering that, you know, this is something that we can all use to unlock our latent powers. Um, and Heinlein, you know, I mean, th there's a range of of responses. Okay, someone like Asimov has zero interest in the occult. You know, he's a very rational mm. uh, kind of person who resists that this kind of thing. Campbell and Heinlein are open to it, partly because you know, I mean, you, you never know, right? It's like Campbell is working with J.B. Ryan at Duke University, who does these famous experiments with ESP, and you know, Heinlein is experimenting with telepathy with his friends. You know, like when he's a younger man, and you know, and, and it's like, what if this thing exists? What, what if, what if you know, there are these powers? We owe it to ourselves to explore them and to, to see if they can be observed and and quantified. Um, and you know, Heinlein doesn't really pursue that seriously after a certain point. But obviously Hubbard does, and Campbell does in his own way. You know, Campbell is looking for psychic powers uh, until his death, essentially, looking for proof that these things exist because it's like the, the next great discovery. It, it is the discovery that will be greater than the, than the bomb, that will that will save mankind from the bomb. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, you know, he spends 30 years doing this um, or longer. Um, and it kind of comes out of this interesting mix of ideas that, we're already in science fiction that Campbell takes and develops and which Hubbard and Heinlein and Campbell all kind of develop along their own lines. You mm -hmm. know, I mean, that, that that's kind of like, you know, a part of the story that gets very hard to track because there are so many different, you know, um, developments going on at the same time. But, you know, they're all kind of grappling with the same problems. Um, mm -hmm. Hubbard in this like very kind of um, mercenary way where it becomes a means, as you point out, you know, toward controlling people and, and you know, personal wealth. Um, 
but also, you know, Campbell is doing this in New Jersey, you know, the entire time, you know, building these machines that can, you know, do these unexplained things and working on, you know, uh, psychic experiments with his wife, Peg, um, who he met through, you know, the Dynetics movement. Um, you know, he, he took it very seriously. And, mm. and, and I think he was troubled by what Hubbard had done. You know, he, he thought Scientology was garbage. You know, mm. the, 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 those were his words. You know, but it, but not just because it was, you know, sort of this this cult that had taken on all this like other stuff, but he saw it as a perversion of the goals that they had set out with, right? They mm. they wanted to like achieve something together in the late forties, early fifties, that Campbell kept doing on his own. This Campbellian dynamics that he was trying to develop with Pig, you know, he he never really stopped. Um, I think he was like a little bit he was chagrined, you know, kind of to see what Hubbard did with it with much greater success, you know, if you measure it by influence and fame and money and all those things, you know, Hubbard, you know, kind of became all the things that he, he wanted to be, you know, mm -hmm. whereas Campbell was kind of left um, feeling very isolated um, toward the end, even though he was trying to accomplish similar things. Mm. But uh, they're such different men. I, I think Campbell was, was authentic. He was genuine. He was, he really believed in this. And so seeing the way that Hubbard developed, you know, that talking to people who were with Hubbard in the 50s, um, he seemed to become worse as yeah. every year went by. Yeah. Then paranoia is inflicted upon him. You've got this, really, the Dianetic movement collapsed by the end of 1950. It sold 150,000 copies of Modern Science and Mental Health. And then Art Sepos pulls the book. Um, by 1952, um, December 52, um, Hubbard gives a series of lectures which he calls the Philadelphia Doctorate Course. And isn't that great? You just sit for six weeks listening to somebody and you've got a doctorate, you know, very easy way to go, um, which will be awarded by a diploma mill, um, Sequoia University, which has actually secretly been bought by Hubbard. Um, not something that came out until a few years ago. Um, but there are only 38 people on that course. So by the end of, he'd had 6,000 people in the Shrine Auditorium to fail to demonstrate the properties of the clear mm -hmm. um, woman. Poor woman couldn't even remember the color of his tie when his back was turned, let alone total recall. Um, so his following diminished and, and he languished for many years. And then in 1963, uh, Kevin Victor Anderson uh, in Victoria, Australia, sets up an inquiry and the media start going wild all around the world about how dreadful and sinister and dangerous Scientology is. And from having about 500 followers, by the publication of the last uh, report, which is the UK report in 71, John Foster's report, um, Scientology's got about 25,000 people in it. So it's grown. And to escape from these inquiries, he's taken to international waters. He's, he's out there at sea, paranoid and terrified, has elected himself the Commodore of, of this little flotilla of rust buckets, fundamentally. They're not sleek uh, marine vessels. And he accumulates hundreds of largely young people with no nautical experience, most of them, and he starts exacting 
horrible punishments upon them. So mm -hmm. when they're in Corfu Harbor in 1968, if you are late for an L. Ron Hubbard lecture by a minute, you will be thrown overboard from anywhere from 25 to 40 feet high. Our high diving board in this country is 14 feet. Your ankles tied together, blindfolded, and you'll be thrown into Corfu Harbor, which of course is full of the human sewage from the other ships. I mean, things have taken a terrible turn. Mm -hmm. And Ron Hubbard has now become this powerful, sadistic, uh, manipulative, malignant narcissist, and is now headed off in this other direction that he's no longer writing the stories, he's become the story. He's become the protagonist and um, his sanity, I think, becomes ever more questionable after that. Mm -hmm. you know, I think there are simple yeah. facts about Runner, but one of them is he smoked 100 cigarettes a day and sort of right, I'm not going to follow somebody who's going to teach me about willpower who smokes mm -hmm. 100 cigarettes a day. There are fairly oxymoronic situations that, that, that arise here until eventually, of course, he goes completely into hiding because there are 300 writs out for him in the US. He's got to be in the US because of the heart attacks he's had and he needs to be near to medical help. So he can't be on a, a boat, you know, in, in the Mediterranean, you know, in, or, or in a port in Morocco or something, but they've been thrown out of most of the ports in the Mediterranean by this time. He needs to be in the US, but he needs, he has to be in hiding. And it would seem that he then fell into dementia and um, from 1983 onwards, the, the orders that he's sending out become, you know, that it becomes more and more um, vicious. You know, mm -hmm. that the people are boasting about being ruthless and, and there's a lot of shouting and screaming going on. And, and what had been this, this way of clearing the planet and ending war, insanity and crime becomes this monster, which, of course, you know, is still with us today as as the kind of echo of Ron Hubbard and, mm -hmm. and this, you know, pirate turned magician. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, this is something that I want to like kind of maybe maybe close on, you know, mm. kind of went yeah. down a little bit. Um, yeah. But but I think that that's a very interesting point. Um, the idea that Hubbard in the end kind of becomes the worst version of himself because mm. he is living in this echo chamber, right? He is, yeah. he is, you know, in a position of ultimate power in this closed world and his ideas and his impulses are kind of fed back to him by his followers. And it's, it's, you know, I mean, almost anyone in that situation would become a psychopath mm. or a sociopath, or it would bring out those tendencies, mm. you know, that, that exaggerate are, you know, them. Yes. Would, would be, would be, you know, yeah. A checked, you know, in, in most situations here, they're unchecked. I think that that explains a lot about, uh, you know, what Scientology became, you know, I think, um, Hubbard's late paranoia was then institutionalized. You know, he kind of became this paranoid figure and then established all these stru structures that have lived on after him, right? Mm -hmm. That, you know, have persisted under other people, under, mm -hmm. under you know, subsequent leadership. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what I want to kind of underline is that, you know, Campbell, you know, never became a cult leader, never had that level of power or, or wealth. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I mean, his, his career is also kind of a tragedy. And I think he also entered kind of an echo chamber toward the end where he was not getting the kind of feedback he needed. And his his views became more extreme. You know, they became more racist for one thing, um, more extreme in terms of, um, you know, these incredibly strange ideas he was promoting in the magazine and his difficulty um, 
you know, relating to writers that he had been friends with, you know, like he estranged, you know, himself from a lot of people who, who loved him and from a lot of fans. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, on, on a more modest scale, right. But I think the, you know, they're actually like similar tendencies there. Okay. Yeah. Like, like my favorite quote actually about all this stuff, it comes from Asimov. He says that, um, you know, in, like circa 1950, he heard that, you know, Hubbard and Campbell had uh, parted ways and he says, you know, he wasn't surprised because, you know, he says, I knew Campbell and I, I knew Hubbard and I knew that no religion can have two messiahs. <laughs> uh, and I think that that kind of sums up, you know, you know, the the difficulty that the, these two people who in some ways actually were very similar would have had, you know, working together uh, for, for much longer. Yeah, I, it's, it's a fascinating idea. So thank you very much. And everybody who's watched this, I hope, is going to rush out and buy at least 10 copies of your book and give them as gifts to everybody you know and mm -hmm. um maybe we'll circle back round in a couple of months or something uh because that might give me time to read your book about buckminster fuller which i'm fascinated oh, good. by fuller is interesting um i'm not saying that he was um you know in the same category as hubbard but they do have interesting affinities um mm. you know similar types you know, for whatever reason, I'm, I'm drawn to a certain kind of personality, and I think Fuller is a different uh, sort of incarnation of, of that of that type. Mm. Fascinating. Thank you very much, Alec. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah. Hi, John here. Thanks for watching. We'd appreciate it very much if you would click like, as well as subscribe, and click the bell for notifications. Every dollar helps and we welcome new patrons on Patreon. We can make a one-off payment with any currency through PayPal. Thanks so much.